0: you brought your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Isaiah 52. We're going to look at the end of 52 and chapter 53. Uh, When you come to this fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah, you are coming to the Mount Everest of prophecy. I cannot stress enough how powerful the words that we're going to look at are. This is Picture that we're going to see gives you with every pen stroke you see who the Messiah will be what he will look like and what he will do now the word Messiah means anointed one and the prophets as God gave them revelation spoke of a person coming from the line of David who would fulfill all of the promises of God he would be a divine one and he would bring greatness to Israel. The Greek word for anointing is Christos, and it's from there we get the title Christ. And so if you hear of Jesus Christ, it literally means Jesus, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And the book of Isaiah was written at 700 B.C. And so the words we're looking at are written 700 years prior to the time of the coming of Jesus. And I want you to know that these words were on the forefront of Jesus' mind all throughout his ministry. Frequently, if you read through the Gospels, you see this statement that Jesus talks about, that I came to fulfill the words of the Lord, or to fulfill prophecy. In fact, you see at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter 4, there is the scene where Jesus comes to his hometown, where he grew up as a boy, into young manhood. He comes to Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, it says this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And recovery to the sight, to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He reads from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And listened to these words. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled In your hearing. Did you get that? Jesus says, These words are written about me and they are being fulfilled in this very moment. It is the living word fulfilling the written world. It is literally Jesus, the incarnation of revelation. How profound a thought is that? And this chapter that we're going to look at today gives you unarguable, incontrovertible proof. That God is the author of scripture and Jesus is the promised Messiah. There is, the details are so minute. They are so profound. No one could have ever predicted this, nor could have anyone been so crafty or cunning like, well, I've got to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to make it all work out. No, when you come to Isaiah 52, at the beginning in verse 13, 13 through chapter 53, you have come to the profound prophecy of who the Messiah is. Now, it's very interesting. Jewish interpretation of this fourth servant song, song has always held early on that this was referring to the Messiah, a person. And yet, when Jesus comes, uh, the parallels in his life and these prophecies are so profound that it was rather troubling to Jewish scholars and to rabbis. And finally, in, there's a rabbi, he's a medieval Jewish rabbi, his, he goes by Rashi, he's in France, and he makes these statements, and he says that actually, this fourth servant psalm, we have got to say, actually, it's referring to the people of Israel, not to an individual. And they, he had to say this because everybody kept seeing how directly this is pointing to Jesus. They're familiar with his life, and so they had to change it. And think about it. If you're familiar with Isaiah 53, how is it that Israel could die for the sins of Israel? Like he talks about in verse 8. There's there's someone that's gonna die for people's sins. Or how is it that Israel is innocent and would suffer unjustly, like you see in verse nine? This isn't talking about a nation, this is talking about an individual, the servant. The one who will die for sin so that the guilty can go free. Today, uh, within Judaism, this text, Isaiah 53, is almost always omitted. And Jewish scholars, as well as liberal, critical uh, scholars, all want to say this is referring to a nation, the nation of Israel, not a person. And yet, when you come to the Gospels, did you know that Isaiah chapter 53 is the most alluded to or quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament. There are at least 41 different citations in the New Testament that come from the verses we're going to look at today. So who is the Messiah? Well, let's take a look. Beginning in verse 13 in chapter 52, he is the exalted servant. And verses 13 through 15 is kind of a summary. It's a preview of the humiliation and the exaltation of this servant, of this Messiah. And it is literally the Lord God who is speaking. And so he says, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He is saying, I want you to know that my servant is going to be internationally acclaimed and recognized. He is going to have an effective reign And look at verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. You see, though he is the high exalted servant. What God is telling us is that this one is going to appear and have a humiliation unlike any other. He is going to go through such inhuman cruelty that he won't even look like a human when they're done with him. In fact, did you see that? Many will be astonished, literally startled. One day they will see this risen Messiah and they're going to be astonished at what they see. For this one was marred more than any man. Did you see that? Not only were his legal rights taken away, he endured a a, a trial that was absolutely not fair. His human rights, were taken away. You see this in the Gospels. When he is apprehended before Annas, they slap him. Before Caiaphas, the other high priest, they spit on him. They slap him. They beat him in the face and on the head with their fists. Pilate, when they bring him before the Roman governor, Pilate has him scourged. And when they were done with the scourging, which in some cases... Scourging actually led to the death of the individual being scourged. Then they continued, these soldiers, beating this one. And yet, I want you to see, though he was bruised and marred and and beaten beyond recognition, I don't want you to miss this exalted servant and what he does. Look at verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. You need to underline Many nations, he is going to sprinkle. This is using the Old Testament imagery, the ceremonial cleansing, where they would take blood and water and oil, and what it would do, it didn't take away sins, but it made the worshiper ceremonially clean. But in Jesus' case, in his disfigured state, he is forming, he is performing this priestly work, where he is literally cleansing people. From their sins. This is so profound. And did you see this? He will sprinkle many nations. He's not just a Messiah for the Jews. All throughout the Old Testament, it is a Messiah for the world, both Jews and Gentiles. He is the Savior of the world. And notice, thus, he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. They will literally shut their mouths because utter clarity comes when they see and hear the eternal son, who is the exalted servant. He's reigning supreme. So who is the Messiah? He is the exalted servant. But he goes on. And these are verses, perhaps, that you're even more familiar with. He's not only the exalted servant, but he is the efficacious sacrifice. Chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. Now, if efficacious is kind of a new word for you, it literally means to be successful in producing the desired or intended result. God sends his son as a servant, and he is sent on a mission to fulfill, and he fulfills it. He produces the intended desired result. And so chapter 53, verse 1, it says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed? Very few. When, when Jesus comes in the incarnation, think of it. The inter- eternal Son of God enters into humanity. Very few people believe that God would send his Son and he would be incarnate like this. Few believed the message. Few recognized him. And yet, when it speaks of the arm of the Lord, this is speaking of power. Just like a man's arm has power. To refer to the arm of the Lord is to speak of the power of God to bring about the incarnation. To bring about a deliverer. And who would believe this report? And so he says, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is meant to be extreme contrast. Arm of the Lord, utter power. The tender shoot, something fragile, easily missed. And it says, verse 2, And and like a root out of parched ground, he had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And so we have this one, he says, My servant, he's not going to come with pomp and circumstance. He's not going to wear royal garb. And the things that you normally associate with kings, he says, I am careful about every single detail. He's going to come like a root, a tender shoot or a root. Like a shoot um, It's normally like an unwanted shoot that comes up from like the root of a tree. Like here's a picture of one. And when you see this, you're like, like, "Ah, we really don't want that. That's the word that's being used here. He's saying, my servant, the utter power of God, the son of God, he's going to come like this shoot, tender, fragile. He's he's going to come. Notice what it says here. He's going to be a root out of parched ground. I want you to know that he's going to come in lowly conditions. And Israel was no paradise spiritually or politically. You've got Rome, and it has literally conquered Israel. Israel is under the foot of Rome. Whatever Rome wants to do, they can dictate. And Israel as a nation is not looking for the Messiah. Half of them are trying to make the Romans happy. Many of them have abandoned faith in God for a legalistic faith, where you just kind of do things to earn God's favor. No. And when, when this Messiah comes, I mean, think of it. He's born into poverty. He is born in a stable. There's not anybody even willing to put them up in one of the rooms. He is born into poverty. He, he grows up. His dad is a carpenter, his earthly dad. Obviously, he has a heavenly father. He grows up very poor. It would be so easy to miss him. And I want you to see how they treated him. No one's attracted to his appearance. He looks like nothing that anyone would be drawn to. And look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He is, he comes and he's literally deplorable. There is nothing attractive about what he looks like. Yes, in his earthly ministry, people came to Jesus. They wanted to see him. They wanted to hear him. But it wasn't because he was so good looking. It was because of what he said and what he did. His miracles. His strength. His wisdom. His power. But you need to understand. The Messiah. He is going to be despised and forsaken of men. He's going to be a man of sorrows. This doesn't mean that he's dour. He doesn't have a sense of humor. He doesn't enjoy life. No, he's called the man of sorrows because better than anyone, he knows the havoc that sin brings upon humanity. And look at what it says in verse 3. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Why were they so ashamed of the Messiah? Because, you see, He didn't represent any of the things that they found to be important. You see, people find what? Wealth and power. You got wealth and power? We're we're paying attention. That commands our attention. He didn't value social prestige, reputation, being served by others, being pampered, uh, having people pamper you. He wasn't involved and interested in any of those things. People in Jesus' time... These were their ideals just like there are our ideals now. It is the same reasons why Jesus was uh, people were ashamed of him and not interested in him then are still true today. And they hide their faces. They're not interested in. Him. What did what did Jesus really look like? I mean, we have all these paintings, and we've got stained glass windows and we have wood carvings. He probably didn't look like any of those. He certainly wasn't tall, dark and handsome. He wasn't just strapped with muscles, man. You're just like looking like, whoa, man. This guy could take on five gladiators. It appears as prophesied that he was going to be one who looked like he'd be forsaken of men. And people were just like, ugh. <laughs> There's got to be better pictures of humanity than this one. And this is the one, though, who has come as the servant. And then you come to verses 4 and 6. This next stanza This is literally the heart of the gospel message. It is the innocent servant dying as a sacrifice for sin. It is at the heart of Israel's religion, where you have an innocent animal who will die for a guilty person. And so take a look at this. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So here we have, you see these are all in past tense. In Hebrew we call these prophetic perfects. What it means is that it's a future event, but it's stated as if it has already happened because it is that certain that it's going to happen. And notice what he says in verse 4. He is stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. All of these are terms used for punishment of sin. So for instance, like, Um, smitten. You remember Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, or Uzziah? They both are smitten with leprosy. They've sinned. God brings a judgment. And these words, smitten, stricken, afflicted, they all are referring to what is going to take place to Jesus. Incredibly, though, do you see this? And I don't want you to miss this. Yet, it says, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He's saying that we saw the affliction that he had to undergo. We saw him die, and this is what we concluded. He deserved it. After all, he said he's the son of God, making himself equal to be with the father. This is blasphemy. He deserved death. And by the way... Many Jews, even today, believe that Jesus rightfully experienced that kind of punishment for blasphemy, to call himself equal with God, when he referred to himself as the Son of God. And so he's saying, we, we thought he deserved these things. But he, didn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't put to death for his own sins. He wasn't put to death for blasphemy on the converse. He was put to death for our sins for our blasphemy, for our waywardness. And it's interesting that word griefs in verse 4 could actually be translated even sickness. And Matthew actually cites this very verse speaking of Jesus taking away these physical illnesses. And you need to understand it was just a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus sets up his eternal kingdom and all illness is going to be vanquished. And so he says, verse 5, and yet, and don't miss this, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Did you see that? He's talking about that this one dies in our place. He is pierced through. And that's exactly what they did. They nailed him to a cross. nails through the wrists. Nail through his feet. And you're like, yeah, I'm familiar with that. But I want you to know Isaiah wasn't. The Jews for several hundred years were never, no one even knew about crucifixion. Because crucifixion was actually started by the Persians. They're the ones that invented it. But it was the Romans who really developed it. They developed it as the ultimate form of torture. They could keep a guy alive up to three days through crucifixion. But when Isaiah writes these words, you want to see the power of God working to have the man write exactly what God wants him to write? He writes of something that is way beyond his own experience. But he has to write it in clarity and actual detail because the Messiah must die this way. You see, capital punishment for the Jews, that meant that you were going to be stoned to death. If the Jews really wanted to, like, hey, we want to really uh, humiliate the victim... They would expose the dead body. But no one knew anything about crucifixion. And yet God did. In fact, he says, my servant, my Messiah, this is how he will die. And notice the words that he uses. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Transgressions means rebellion against God. It's daring to cross the line where God says, don't do this, and you're like, yeah, get out of here, and I'm going to do it, and the word iniquity speaks of the crookedness of sinful nature. It is the human acts that go against divine ideals, and I want you to see this. We are sinners by choice through our transgressions, and we are sinners by nature. You see, we're sheep, and we are sinful, and so we do what's in our nature, and we transgress. We do iniquity and transgressions, And yet, did you see this? He was pierced through for our transgressions. not his, because he's perfect. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This isn't speaking of a healing of the body. This is the healing of the sickness of sin. And the only way a lawbreaker can be at peace with the law is if they suffer the punishment of the law's demands. And since we could never pay the penalty for the law's demands, which is death, for our violation of it, God sends the Messiah, the servant, and he dies for us. Look at verse 6. All of us, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see this? All of us, each of us, us all, What God did is this. The manner in which he laid our iniquity on him is that God treated Jesus, this Messiah, as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though he was perfectly innocent of any sin. All of it upon him. He's going to pay the absolute full penalty. It's like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, under the law of Moses, the sheep died for the shepherd. But under grace, the good shepherd dies for the sheep. And then look at this, verse 7. He was oppressed, And he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Don't miss this. He is silent. He does not raise his voice. He's silent before Caiaphas, before the chief priests and the elders, before Pilate, before Herod Antipas. He's going through a trial that is absolutely illegal. And everyone there knows it. And he doesn't say, hey, wait. I at least need a fair trial. Wait, you're mistreating me? None of that. He takes it on in full. He does not speak. The soldiers mock him, and they beat him, and he says nothing. Why? Because he is fulfilling the prophecies regarding the Messiah. He did not open his mouth. He utters no protest and do you see this? He is like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. You see, this Messiah, this servant, he is going to assume the role of a sacrificial lamb. The servant is a sacrificial lamb. Now, this is the timing of this is so profound. When do these events take place? On the Passover. What's the Passover? The Passover is that time where every family in Israel has a lamb that is slaughtered in their place. And at the exact time of Passover, that is when Jesus, the Messiah, the sacrificial lamb, he literally dies for the sins. The Passover pictured an event that was going to take place. It foreshadowed it. Israel knew all about it because Isaiah gives pinpoint accuracy. This one is going to be a sacrificial lamb. And he dies at the day of Passover. So no one will miss the profound reality of the shepherd. And you may not think a lot about the fact that he didn't say anything. um, But it's interesting. I was reading about uh, this sheep he's in the West talking about sheep because i was trying to learn so i could really understand this passage and he said that when you when you try to shear sheep you've got a fight on your hands it generally takes several men because they feel threatened and they're going to thrash about with everything they can to throw you off but when it says that he is he he's going to come and he's like a sheep that is silent before it shears that is very unnatural for a sheep that's because this sheep is the supernatural one. He is the efficacious sacrifice. And apparently lambs, when they go to slaughter, it's like if they're in line, they, they don't even they're like, oh, I'm next. And so it is with the Messiah. And yet he does not does not open his mouth. It's like John the Baptist said, remember John 129, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. You know how Isaiah spoke of this one who would be the the sacrificial lamb, Jesus. He's the one. And then look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, By oppression and judgment, literally could be translated oppressive judgment, indicating it was a corrupt legal procedure. You know when the the high priests were running their mock trials that were totally illegal? They're doing it at night? Did you know that that was all prophesied? It's exactly the way the servant was going to be tried. And then notice that he is going to be cut off. Literally, the servant is going to lose his life because he is going to be a substitute. He is going to take God's wrath that the Jews deserve. He's going to take it upon himself. And by the way, uh, look at verse 8. He says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered as they're processing this, are you serious? He was cut off from the land of the living. He dies for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke is due. He dies in their place. Do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's traveling. Do you know what verses he's reading in Isaiah? Verses 7 and 8. Remember when Philip comes and he explains it to him? He says, these verses that you're reading, because the Ethiopian eunuch is going, who's he talking about? He says, he's talking about Jesus. And then look at this, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You would expect he dies as a criminal, right? He's got two other criminals on his side. You would expect that he would be buried, or lack of buried, just kind of thrown in a pit, like the other criminals. This is so profound. It's as if God says enough. Once he's killed, once they take him off a cross, enough. Now he's going to be buried with honor. It's as if God is saying he is innocent and he declares it in his death. It's the final humiliation, this dishonorable burial, but that doesn't take place. It's like God says it's it's enough. It's done. And do you remember what happened? There's Joseph and Nicodemus. And this Joseph of Arimathea. he's a rich guy. He actually has a tomb outside of Jerusalem where he plans it. He's probably going to get buried sometime. And this man actually has Jesus' body laid in that tomb. He's not laying in a ditch with common criminals. No, God says, I want you to know that when he dies, he's going to be buried and he's going to be with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He is innocent. Isn't that powerful? That is exactly what happened. The wonderful way Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled to the very detail. So who is this Messiah? He's the exalted servant. He's the efficacious sacrifice, and he is the eternal savior. Look at how this song ends. This this is so profound. I am I, overwhelmingly gripped by it every time I read through this. This final stanza, just like the beginning one, God is speaking. He's the speaker. And you remember when we started this, 52, 13 through 15, it says that the, the servant is promised exaltation despite his humiliation. But now in these final verses, 10 through 12, he is promised exaltation because of his humiliation. The prophet, what he's doing, is now explaining the cross from God's point of view. It is so profound. Jesus didn't die as a martyr. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. He is God's sacrifice for the sins of the world. Look at verse 10. But the Lord, that is Yahweh, God's personal name, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Do you see this? The Lord was pleased. In what way? How is God pleased with the servant suffering and dying like this? Well, let me give you some ways that he's pleased. He was pleased because redemption was accomplished. He was pleased because the eternal plan of salvation was fulfilled. He was pleased because the sacrifice of his son who died so that others could have eternal life. This was pleasing. He was pleased, catch this, to display his righteous anger against sin in such a graphic way. If you think my sin isn't a real big deal, who cares, everybody's doing it. I want you to know what sin looks like in terms of consequence. All you have to do is look at Jesus dying. And he was pleased because he demonstrated his love for sinners through such a majestic sacrifice. If you ever have any questions, does God really love me? You just think of Jesus on the cross and you've got your answer. And notice what he said. He's not not pleased because of the agony. He's pleased because of the accomplishment. Not pleased because of the suffering. He's pleased because of the salvation. And he says, verse 10, look at this. If he will, he will render himself as a guilt Offering. This is when one wrong God or another person, they had to provide atonement for the wrong and make restitution. And this is what the servant does. He makes restitution for us. And this is where it is so profound. If he will render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will see his spiritual children. He will see those who will believe in him. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know what these verses are? This verse is telling us: this Messiah, though he dies a horrific death, and though he's buried, he comes back to life. This is the resurrection. Do you see it? He will see his offspring. He's not dead. He's alive, and this brings great joy. In fact, he refers to his good pleasure, satisfaction. It's great rejoicing that the redeemed are alive and the mission has been accomplished and his soul is satisfied. That's what this text is saying. Why? Because it's by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. It's knowledge. He knows what needs to be done and he does it. And don't miss this. He will justify the many. He will literally declare people who were unrighteous, righteous. He will acquit people from their guilt. Much of what Paul has to write about, about justification, is sourced in this verse. Do you see this? My servant will justify the many. The guilty, they become righteous all because of him, because he bears their iniquities how amazing is that do you know this god never sees you and i in our sin you and i we have a tendency to remember our sin and think a lot about it god the father never does that he always sees us united in jesus and jesus like we sang about has paid it all he loves you with an unending eternal love And so the song ends. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This sometimes is a little enigmatic here. What's going on here? I will allot him a portion with the great. He's going to divide the booty with the strong. All of this is image of victory after a battle. And what you would expect that God the Father, Yahweh, would say is, I will give him everything. And he, and he will have everything. I mean, you see that like in Philippians 2. He's, he's got the name that's exalted above every other name. But this verse, really, the emphasis here is about sharing. You see that? Portion with the great, Divide the booty. With the strong, the spoils of war. So who are these people? Who are the great? That word great could be translated many. It is in verse 11. It's later on in verse 12. Here where he says he bore the sins of many. Who are these people? Get this. These people are those who've been redeemed. They're the ones who've been made righteous. They are us if we're believing in Christ. I mean, are you saying that we're going to be great? Yeah, it's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. By virtue of what Jesus has done, we share in his blessings. It's not like we're going to be uh, up in heaven and we're going to be kind of in an impoverished kind of state watching Jesus with it all. Actually, this is the magnanimous grace of God. He literally shares all of the blessings he's secured. We are with him in the millennial kingdom. We reign. We are with him in the new heavens and the earth. We share in his glory. We share in what he's accomplished. There is this eternal fellowship, hard for us to imagine, but we share in it. He calls it great. We're the strong, but not by virtue of anything we've done, by virtue of everything. That he's done. He's done. It's like he says in Second 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who always leads us into triumph. He's the leader. He's the triumphant one. And we're merely in his train. And do so you see this? He's numbered with the transgressors. you see that? And yet he himself bore the sin of many. And he interceded for the transgressors. He was numbered with criminals. He died with two criminals on either side. And do you see this? And he interceded for the transgressors. You know when his praying ministry takes place on the cross? Do you know what he's saying? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He says it over and over again. It's in the imperfect tense. And that ministry still continues to this very day. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that Jesus continues to pray for his people. I tell you, this is so powerful. I can hardly stand it. I mean, think of it. Look at what you see in this text, chapter 53. It describes his life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, verses 1 through 4, his substitutionary death, verses 5 through 8, his burial, verse 9, his resurrection and exaltation, his saving of sinners, his intercession, and his kingdom, verses 10 through 12. And I want the full weight of this to sink into your heart because you know why? It did with Jesus. Do you know shortly before he is apprehended and scourged and goes to the cross, Jesus makes this statement in Luke 22, verse 37. He says, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for that re- which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus quotes Isaiah 53, 12, the end of the song and he's saying, this speaks of me. And it's going to happen now. F.B. Meyer said this. There is only one brow upon which this crown of thorns will fit. It is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the exalted servant promised in the scripture. He's the efficacious sacrifice presented to the world as the eternal savior. Do you remember after the resurrection? Jesus is walking with two men who are making their way to Emmaus. And he makes this statement to him in Luke 24. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus said, John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, whom you've sent. So what we do is we turn from our sin and we trust in him who is the promised Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, this is the apex of prophecy. To read it and to be gripped by the extreme detail you go in and how it's fulfilled in Jesus literally takes our breath away. For someone who has never truly trusted in Christ and tonight they see him in the fullness, would they pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin and I believe. I see the power of scripture and I see the wonders of the Savior and I trust in him for forgiveness of sins and life. And Lord, for us as believers, may this be such a meaningful Easter season. May these words of the prophecy fill our lives with utter worship and devotion. For glorious is your name, and we worship you tonight in Jesus' name.